Guys, I was I was asked I was asked by a special request, special request from a very uh, special person, that if everybody could sit in the first three rows. I was asked by a very special request, so we're gonna do the first three rows right here. Just the first three rows. Just a very special request. Someone asked me if uh, if I wouldn't mind having people do that. So if you don't mind. That was me asking myself <laughs> if we could have people do that. That was a request from me. Have a special guest speaker today too. Yes. Special request. Take it easy on recording The speaker was also the, the, the requester was also concerned that people might be too squished together. But then I talked to the requester and said that it wouldn't be a problem. Yes, with myself. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. You made it. You did it. The devil couldn't stop you. Not today, Satan. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful group of people. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you take care of us, all of our needs, even when we don't acknowledge that it's you, even when we mistakenly think that it's by our own hand that we're cared for, even when we forget to acknowledge that it's you that puts the breath in our lungs. Lord, that you have the number of hairs on our head uh, in your mind. Lord, that your thoughts towards us are more than the grains of sand on the seashore. Father, we just give you praise tonight, uh, for we are the work of your hands, and you did a good job in making us, and uh, Lord, we are grateful for all the wonderful things that are in our lives, even the hardships that refine us and make us dependent on you and cause us to cry out to you. Lord, we have so many reasons to be thankful tonight, and so God, we just acknowledge that, and we just come before you with a grateful heart. Um, Tonight, would you just move us along by your spirit? Yes. Would you guide us where you want us to go? Would you let uh, be discussed the things that are on your heart? We just yield ourselves to you, Lord, and we just say, take over. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's start off with uh, a few interesting things. Since this is a discipleship class, uh, there are some things that I think are worth saying I was, uh, I was doing a little bit more research on my own. I like to research uh, things like this for fun. Um, so you all know I've talked about the 40 acres and a mule thing multiple times. So I continue to, for, if you don't know, 40 acres and a mule was an agreement that was reached post-Civil War. William Tecumseh Sherman was a general who was also an indigenous person, uh, which is another term for Native American. Uh, but was an indigenous person who was a general during the Civil War. He gathered together African-American leaders during that time and said, what would we have to do to make reparations? Now, during the Civil War, there were approximately 4 million African-Americans that were fighting for America during that time. And the African-American leaders that gathered together said that what we would ask for 
is 40 acres. And later they came back and said, and also give us a mule to work that land. Now, several things about this. Was this Ian? Did you bring this to me last week? Yes, sir. So I wanted to bring this up because I thought that this was very interesting. People who were coming over to help um, establish this new land were given 50 acres. I thought that that was really interesting. So even in the request for 40 acres, it was a humble request. Because these were people who did not come over voluntarily. They were kidnapped and dragged here. And so the request for 40 acres was even a humble request. That was mind-blowing to me. I calculated up, since there were 4 million, today, if those 4 million, or let's go back, so let's say 4 million, let's say every one of them was given 40 acres, because they had agreed on 440,000 acres, which is nothing. There's almost 2 billion acres just in the 48 states of America, not Alaska and Hawaii. Almost 2 billion. So that is, when you say 440,000, 1 million would be 0.05? And so this would be 0.025 of the land. When, if, if I was able to tell you what the African-American slaves did for the economy, you, you couldn't fathom. Our economy was built largely off of their labor. So we became what we did largely because of their labor. So, uh, <laughs> when you piece all these things together, and Martin Luther King Jr. talked about it in one of his um, speeches, actually in his I Have a Dream speech, he talked about a promissory note that was never made good on and actually calculated up what we would owe them today. So now it's been factored, or it's been uh, factored for today, and it equates to approximately seven trillion dollars. So, <laughs> what I think is interesting, though, is is I went back and I said, what if we gave forty acres to all four million African Americans during that time instead of four hundred forty thousand, which is a fraction? But what if, what if we did that? So that equated to be uh, about 160 million acres, which equates to about 250,000 square miles, which is a little bit smaller than the size of Texas. And everybody would get about three and a half acres. That's if we turned around and gave, because there's about 46 million African-Americans here in America today. Everybody would get about three and a half acres, each person. Not that that's going to happen. Here's the thing. All of that is just math, because I love to do math. But the sad thing is, this same conversation would be being had about the indigenous people, or who we call Native Americans, but we pretty much successfully wipe them out. That's why we don't hear these same conversations coming from them. Because estimates are anywhere up to 60 million of them were wiped out. So when we think about where we're at, and uh, 
not, I, it's not that anyone needs me to weigh in on any political or social uh, issues, because who am I? But what I think is interesting is lest we forget how riddled our past is with completely ungodly behavior. Far be it from us to find our identity in this nation. Let's separate the people who have fought and died for this nation. That's a heroic, godly attitude to want to die or be willing to die so that others can have freedom or be liberated. I separate that. When I think about America and I think about how it was formed, I take the soldiers and those who are willing to die for us, right, and for our freedoms, and I separate that from much of what we are built on, right? And, and I honor these people who are willing to die that we could have freedoms. I, I separate that from what I'm talking about. When I talk about taking pride uh, or having, um, getting my identity from where we live, I would say after, after studying these pieces of information, all the more reason why I would want to find all of my identity in a kingdom that is eternal and whose leader died so that we all could be liberated. Instead of profiting off of our enslavement, made himself subject to unjust suffering so that we could be liberated. He's building a kingdom that will never end and liberating people from bondage. So I guess my point is... Um, Number one, we need to be educated on these things. I need to be educated on these things, and I'm fighting to educate myself. I'm fighting to study um, because we didn't even talk about what's been done to the Jews throughout the ages. Why is it important that we talk about these things? Because uh, how many of you, anything that I've just said, you heard any pieces of new information out of anything that I just said about all that? That's why I'm talking about it, because we need to, to know these things. We need to hear these things and talk about them so we can understand the people that we're addressing and also the spiritual things behind the people that we're addressing, even if they don't understand what's going on and why things are the way that they are in this country. It's important for us to understand the reasons behind why things are the way that they are. There's a lot of broken promises and a lot of uh, terrible things that have happened, and, and we're not just going to war flesh and, and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And, and if we fight with flesh and blood, uh, we'll find ourselves losing, even if it seems like we might win in a small conversation. So all the more reason for us just to continue to be aware of what's going on behind the scenes, what's happening behind the scenes. It's good for us to educate ourselves. Amen? Amen. And if at any point... Uh, us talking about these things uh, rubs you the wrong way or you feel like you can't stand for it, this is still a completely voluntary meeting. <laughs> Amen. All right. Hey, did y'all find that section two was a lot more uh, substantial? 
Yeah, very meaty. Making Jesus Lord. Ooh. How much control do we have to give up? This is a tough thing for us to talk about. Psalm 912 uh, says that the Lord hears the cry of the afflicted. Uh, we're going to be talking about this on Sunday because Nehemiah 5 starts off with, there was a great outcry that came from the men and women, not against the Egyptians, not against the Assyrians, but against their own brothers. And uh, the first time that we see an outcry is in Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry of the evil that's taking place in there. The people of the city are crying out because there's so much evil happening there. The next time that we see it is, is uh, when Esau cries out bitterly because Jacob has stolen his blessing. Uh, the next time that we see it is when the Israelites cry out because they're in Egypt and they're suffering bitterly. The next time we see it is when the Egyptians are crying out because they've lost their firstborn. So... Crying out uh, bitterly, this word cry out, when it says the Lord hears the cry, same word, of the afflicted. Um, what I've been seeing in Nehemiah is when we get afflicted, we cry out. And there's something special about that cry that the Lord hears and will not ignore. And... I began to see, man, how devastating is it then if we never get to the place where we are afflicted enough to cry out? What if we never got to that place where we felt so desperate that we cried out? What if we were comforted and entertained enough in this life where we never had to cry out and we never needed him to deliver us? We never needed him to rescue us. Wouldn't that be a travesty? And on the flip side, if we were afflicted so much that we did cry out to him and he came to us in the way that he came to the Israelites, in the way that he comes to those who are afflicted, boy, wouldn't that be life-changing? Wouldn't that be potentially world-changing, right? The word Lord is obviously very important in the life of a Christian, According to Romans 10.9, our confession of Jesus as Lord is the very basis of our salvation. When we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, we pledge our obedience and worship. We are giving our lives and resources to his control for direction and service. Every part of us that rebels against authority has a hard time with the things that we read in this lesson. And there are parts of, are there parts in you that rebel against authority? Anybody else in this room? Does anybody else struggle with rebelling against authority? Okay, good. I'm not alone. Lord represents the highest authority we can submit to. Lord is a way of living in a relationship with an all-powerful ruler. It is not a religious concept, but rather the submission of your life to God. Anybody remember the corresponding word for Lord? Adonai. Adonai. 
What many Christians seemingly do not understand is that when we make Jesus our Lord, it works two ways, both of which benefit us. Sweet. First, as our Lord, Jesus becomes not just our boss or ruler in the sense of our obedience to him. That's what we have the hardest time with. We are his by ownership. The Lord is the owner of his lands or empire, and that includes all the people living there. We are acknowledging his supremacy and taking the place and position he chooses for us. We're going to read Ephesians 2.10 in just a second. All that the Lord has is at the disposal of the faithful servant to be used by them to accomplish his will. That's what we miss a lot. We're familiar with the idea that we're giving up control. We resist that. We have a hard time with that. But what many of us have not tapped into is that when we make him Lord, all of a sudden everything that he is ruler and controller over is at our disposal to do his will. And his intentions for us are bad or good? Good. Let's go to Ephesians 2.10. Come on, y'all can feel it. We're going to go there tonight, aren't we? And the Lord has some plans for us tonight. You know why I also like talking about our past with uh, peoples that we've broken promises to? Because it trains us to take the most embarrassing and shameful things in our lives and in our past and hold them up to the Lord and ask them somehow to redeem. Somehow make something beautiful out of this broken mess. Show us the way forward. And when we practice that, we take all the power back from the enemy. When we hide the things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed about, then the enemy has all sorts of power to play with us like puppets. But when we take all that stuff that's in the dark and hold it up to him and say, whatever you want to do with this, do it. All of a sudden, the enemy is robbed of his power, and the Lord is free to speak to us because we're crying out to him. Ephesians 2.10. Sydney, where are you at? Would you read that loud and proud, please? Can you grasp that idea? Can you grasp the idea that there are specific things, Brad, that God has created before time for you to fulfill. Can you grasp that? I can't grasp it. Tracy, can you grasp that? There's this whole list of things, Zach, that God created for you before time. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, there was a whole list of specific things created just for you in advance for you to do. Levi, that's true for you, my little friend. Yes. Hannah, true for you. Michael, true for you. In advance, God created things for you to do. Now, do you think that you can do those things in your own strength? Do you think that he is capable to accomplish them through you? So if you can't do them in your own strength, but he can accomplish them through you, then there's a gap. That gap is covered by grace. We think that grace means that he doesn't 
look at our sins anymore, and it doesn't matter how we live. That's how we've been told, like, to understand grace. That's what we've been taught. Grace is the power that he gives you that makes up the difference between what you're capable of as far as it concerns what he created in advance for you to do and, 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 and what he's actually calling you to accomplish. Grace covers that. Grace is empowerment. Okay? That's why when Paul prays for the thorn to be taken away, and he says, ah, but my grace is sufficient for you. Because what Paul is thinking is, I got to get rid of this thing so I can do what God has called me to do. God answers back to him, no, 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 I can accomplish it even with that weakness in you. Secondly, when we make Jesus Lord, we are pledging our obedience and worship. We are pledging ourselves and our resources to his control for direction and service. I have a lot or a little in my hands compared to what he has. A little. So I have what I have, what I've been entrusted with. My paycheck, my house, my cars, my kids, my family, my time, my energy, I have that in my hand. Compared to the one who created everything, is this a lot or a little? I take my little and I lay it down at his feet. I say, you can do whatever you want with this because the exchange is all my little in exchange for an infinite amount of resources. Fish in the loaves. That's exactly right. His direction and service. The person who truly makes Jesus the Lord of their lives begins to live not for the temporal, not for that which fades, but for eternity, they are transformed and no longer live for themselves and their own pleasure, but rather they begin to make their lives really count. And one day we'll receive an eternal reward. When we make Jesus Lord, we are rescued from a life without purpose and meaning. So what does that sentence infer then about someone who does not make Jesus, and lo Jesus Lord? Purposeless and meaningless. That might hurt feelings. But if there's a list of things that were created in advance for us to do, and we do not partner with the Lord who hung the stars in the heavens and fills every living thing with breath, if we do not partner with him and instead choose to go our own way, create our own list of things to do, then at the end when we stand before him, and he says, did you do what I created you to do? Did we partner together? And you say, no, I actually did these things. Your life will be shown to be purposeless and meaningless. That is the truth. That is the truth. Because our righteous deeds apart from him are like what? Filthy rags. When we make Jesus, Lord, we are rescued from a life without purpose and meaning. We become his Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. In this study, we will learn how to have a new master and follow his leading. So real quick, there's enemy. We were an enemy, dead enemy. And then sometimes the place that we come to him is first slave 
and master. Sometimes that's how we begin. We think, okay, I was a slave to sin, but now I'm a slave to righteousness. We move from there to a son or daughter, right, to the father. And we recognize that some people get to that place where we recognize that relationship. What's even higher than that? Yeah, the husband and wife, the idea of intimacy with our creator. When Paul in Ephesians 5 is talking about the roles of the husband and wife, at the end he says, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about who? Christ, Christ and the church. Now, when we think about this place that we're starting, it's important for us to grasp the master-slave relationship because what we know of masters on earth is that they can be corrupt, selfish, self-pleasing, right? They can take advantage and use you. Is that the type of master that we're talking about with the Lord? No. No. What is the example that he sets? He's a servant. He serves. Our master left heaven to come down and be made lower than the angels and then stoop down to wash imperfect men's feet. That's our master. It's different to think of him that way than when we just think of the idea of master and all the connotations that it comes with in our culture. Until a commitment is made to one master... The eye is constantly roving for greener pasture. You can't serve two masters. Let's go to Matthew 6, 22 through 24. Have y'all been praying with me this past week about prophecy? How many of you guys, since we started this discipleship helps book over the last three and a half months, have taken steps towards a much healthier and more consistent prayer life in this room? Praise God. Praise God. Do you know that that elevates everyone around you? Do you know that you investing in your prayer life with the Lord elevates everyone in this room? Do you know that? Do you know that the whole world is being made a better place because of your prayer life being increased, strengthened, because of it growing more healthy? Why? Because that's more of him and an awareness of him and his heart here in this world. And we were put here not to operate apart from him, but to allow him to operate through us. And so when we're connecting with him, greater connection with him means greater connection of him with the rest of the world. Do you see that? So in Matthew 6, 22 through 24, Ian, would you read that loud and proud for us, please? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if our eye is healthy, your whole, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Kelly, what did Jesus say about this? What's he saying? 
Yes. Yes. Brad, do you have any thoughts? I think it's uh, one's on one end and the other's on the other. You can only get closer to one, which will cause you to go further away from the other. That's a good way to put it. What do we typically think about this, about serving two masters? Do we look at it that way? Do we look at we're either serving one or the other? Someone be honest for a little bit. What do we, how do we typically see that? We can do both. And what does that look like? What does doing both look like? What's that? Doing whatever you feel like. Okay, what else? Yeah. And so because of what this is saying, so when we, we look at it, and I, Keith, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. We're half-heartedly doing two things instead of wholeheartedly doing one thing. But what does that mean then? If we're half-heartedly doing two things, in that explanation, that, I, I think that that perfectly sums it up. Is that actually what we're doing then? Are we half-heartedly serving the Lord? No, no, we're, not, no, we're, not, we're not, not serving at all. So we're not serving Him at all. We're being our own I heard someone put it this way, and I think this is brilliant. If I was faithful to Lindy 95% of the time and was only unfaithful 5% of the time, am I faithful or unfaithful? unfaithful. What about 99% of the time? Unfaithful. unfaithful. You cannot serve both. You are serving either one or the other. Do you get that? What does Joshua challenge the people to do in Joshua 24, 14, and 15? Let's go there. We never pick what truth we want to have and then look to see if we can find any scriptures to validate it. That's what the world does. When I say world, I mean people who identify as believers, but live in this half-hearted way as our brother Keith so eloquently put it. I live how I want to, and then I try and find some scriptures, sometimes not even scriptures, but just principles that I think Jesus would have lived by, because Jesus is like me, right? And then I justify my lifestyle. That's not going to do us any good. That's not going to do the world any good. In fact, if we keep identifying as believers and living that way, I would say we're actually moving things the wrong direction because the world is getting a picture from us that this is who Jesus is. And that's, he had nothing to do with that. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Javi, would you take that one, please? So what is Joshua saying here, Javi? What, what position is he forcing the people to take? Uh, to fear God. To fear God? Or what? To choose. To choose, you know, whether you will fear God or serve false gods. Like 
So if he's telling them, serve false gods or serve this God, why would that be hard for them to be forced to make a decision? Yeah. Okay. Kind of feel like, I mean, he literally says God, plural. So to them, it's, it's normal to just serve many masters. They're like, well, I have this God and this God and this God, and now I have your God. And he's like, no, that's not how this works. Yeah. And that's like a foreign concept to them because they're so used to just like not giving their full heart to something, but just kind of like choosing what is beneficial to them. Yeah. Josh. Good, Jackson. And I think it's just challenging him to commit because at the end he gives his stance and now he's like, for me, I will serve the Lord. And he's showing them that he is committed to the Lord God. Yes. Yes, Lord May. Yeah, that's good. Think about this. They were, def oh yes, Naomi, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, what I keyed in on was the word ancestors. So that to me says that the generations, their generations, have worshipped other gods. It's like that tradition, like what does your family do? These are traditions. This is what we do. And now you're going to go against what we're doing? It's really hard to do that if you are tight with your family. Yeah. I would agree with you. I agree. I think it's, I think it's interesting. One second, Tim. I think it's interesting. Um, syncretism. You guys have heard uh, Pastor Nick talk about that, right? You've heard, you've heard me use. We, we each have our, our own way of saying the same thing. He says syncretism. I say assimilation, right? Assimilation. What is assimilation? Us losing our identity to the culture that surrounds us. So we become more like them and we lose who we are, okay? What I see in here is he's saying to these people, for them, God has been one of their many gods and that was the way that they lived. Now he's saying, God will not stand for that. You can continue serving these many gods that you carry made of wood, hay, stone, or straw, right? Or metal. But God, the true God, will not fit nicely inside your group of idols. He stands alone apart from that. You can continue with this. Just know you are not serving him. We want to make that very clear. To continue doing whatever you please or also serving these other gods means 
You are not serving him. And you need to know that. It's important that you know to serve these other gods and think you're also at the same time serving God, the true God. You need to know that he disagrees with you and says you are not serving him. The only way that you can be serving him is to say no to them, step away from them, and only serve him and not those other gods, not those other idols. One master, and he was forcing them to make a decision that day. Tim, you had something? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm serving the Lord, you know, so it like feels for my flesh, it's comforting for my flesh to not make a choice, Yeah. you know, to not make a decision. And we have to remember this cycle that we get in, so this is the selfish sin cycle, right? So in serving both, this is typically what our relationship with the Lord will look like when we're serving both. We will be a part of groups like this, like we talked about last week, we'll be a part of groups like these, we'll feel guilty about our sin will put away those idols and be like, Lord, I want to serve you wholeheartedly. And then over time, since it's not built on love, since we're not moving in faith, but we're just trying to abstain, that literally defines our relationship with the Lord, trying to abstain from sin instead of walking by faith. And then all of a sudden we're lured away, we become tempted, we're drawn away by our evil desires within us, we give in to sin, then we feel guilty. Then we try to move back towards the Lord right? And then we receive forgiveness. We feel good again. We try and put away those idols and we keep going back to them over and over and over again until eventually we're just like, we push away from God. And then as we're living here, we don't want to feel like we're resisting God or like we're enemies of God. And so we create God to be this, our own little God. And we group him in and we say, me and God are okay. God is okay with what I'm doing and how I'm living. And we literally make God in the way that we want him. And and we say that he says our life is okay and that we're okay with him and that's how it should be. And we don't realize that we've completely abandoned him and his ways and his word. And we now live our own lives how we think is best. Who's Lord in this scenario? Me. I'm Lord. I dictate what is true. I say what is right for me. I give everyone else permission and authority to live the way that they want to live. Everyone has their own truth. Who can judge? This is when I make God in my own idol. And I, I, I dictate how he would feel. Do you see that? And living like that doesn't hurt his feelings. It keeps us a prisoner and blind and walking around with a heavy weight and with random like bats of depression and loneliness or extreme selfishness, confusion, chaos in our lives. He's not insecure. He's fine. That's what in Job, when Elihu is talking to Job, he's like, your righteous acts don't add anything to him. He's God. And when you do wickedness, it only affects a man like yourself and those around you. He's, he's God. He's fine. You know, he's not affected when you, yeah. when you act that way. Yes, ma'am.
explain what it is to use the right way so that we're not living like that. Yes. So the right way is not to live a life that's defined by trying to resist sin, but living a life of faith. So what this means is we stay humble. We stay humble, which means when we fail, we confess it. We admit it. We don't fight to preserve areas of darkness in our life or areas of selfishness where we're just giving into pleasure and comfort to try and numb uh, the longing to be united with him, where we give into that comfort and entertainment to, to numb ourselves. But instead, we bring everything into the light and we just say, okay, Lord, here is my life and here's all the messiness. And then we let his Holy Spirit come and begin to lead us day by day, one day at a time. And we recognize that the goal is, is not just to abstain from sin, because we can abstain from sin for the rest of our lives and not please God. Do you know that? Because it's not about just not sinning. It's about living by faith. So now, day in and day out, my goal is to live by faith, to look for opportunities to trust him. Because what am I going to start knocking out as I'm living by faith, being led by the Spirit? Things on that list that was prepared in advance for me to do. And I might not even realize when I'm hitting those things. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I will feel this sense of purpose and meaning and accomplishment and adventure. I'll feel His peace. I'll feel His affirmation. Not because I'm earning my salvation by works, but because I'm now connected with my creator and I feel him flowing through me. I'm not just, I'm not just operating according to the things that I see and feel. I'm now moving in the supernatural. I see things that are beyond my strength. I do things that are beyond my ability. I'm a part of things that are greater than I can imagine because I'm now living by faith. I'm living in that area that's beyond my strength Right? I'm living in that grace-filled area, empowered by grace, day in and day out to live by faith. And I'm seeing supernatural things happening one day at a time. One day at a time. Someone had something over here? Yeah. So all of those, those Christians that I would feel like are lukewarm, that are living in that, like, this is what God is, are they, do those not saved? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even put it that way. This, because this is what we want. We want, we want a, an answer like that. Are they saved or not saved? What I would say is this. Today, when I woke up, did I need a Savior today? I need a Savior right now. I need to be saved right now. Right? I'm living in this. I need to be saved from my old self that wants to come back to life like a zombie and steal, kill, and destroy everything good in my life. Right? I need to be saved right now. I need a Savior right now. So I would say it's, it's, not, it's not that way. If you know the truth... Don't fear the implications or the consequences of living by the truth. Come fully into the light. Let go of the things that are really burdening you down and just weighing you down. They're burdens, making us walk like this spiritually throughout life. Some of us, not even that, crawling on the ground, right? So I would say, I would say let, let go of the things that are holding you down. Humble yourself, repent. Bring those out into the light, take away the shame, the embarrassment, and begin walking by faith. So I would say rather than the saved or not saved thing, I would say don't, don't worry about that. If you know the truth, acknowledge the truth. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion, right? If you hear his voice, respond. That's it. Hey, Nick. Yeah. Would you say that um, 
since like we are all being saved, right? We talk about how we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Um, that because we're alive by the grace of God, yes. we are being saved. And I can I know that there's times in my life where I'm doing things, right? The scripture says, who can discern the errors in his heart? Lord, forgive my hidden faults, Yeah. right? And then let willful sin not rule over me. So there are things that we do transgress against the Lord. Hmm. My conscience might be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. And so... I need to live wanting correction, wanting inspection from my brothers and sisters, loving it, because if I hate it, I'm stupid, the scripture says, right? Yeah. And so if I live this way and someone points out to me, hey, I think you have an idol there. You're not willing to lay that down. I really need to take that to heart. You know, we need to be correctable. And we need to also be warned because Joshua did warn these people. And what he said was, look, you can't live like this forever and, and think that you're serving God. That's what we just said. You can't serve two masters. And right now you need to be warned. Either make a decision, put them away, or not. Or serve them or, yeah. wholeheartedly and admit that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so I do think that it's okay that that, um, you know, we, we, the church does need to be evangelized to. Yes. And, and they need to know. And we need to be like Joshua to be able to say, you can't serve God like, like he was describing and just make him one of your own. You can't do that. And, and we have to take that stance to be able to say that. And that is a warning for... Uh, coming judgment if they proceed to live like that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I would say this: if you are alive, if you still got breath in your lungs, God is having mercy on you. Yeah. You could be dead, but you're not. Yeah. You're not. And so, if you hear His voice, respond, mm -hmm. because He's the source of life. Yeah. Uh, someone fill me in on the story of Elijah. What did he do with the undecided in the land? Some brave soul who has heard the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. <laughs> fill me in. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Rob. So um, he saw this dividedness that we're talking about. And um, I think in reading that, I realized he didn't, he didn't try and logic, logically prove God. <laughs> situation in which um, it almost probably seemed like a David and Goliath with the current situation of the numbers of prophets yeah. and um, the climate of that culture. Um, but he just had trust and he put um, not not put um, God to the test, but he had trusted so so heavily in the Lord. And I think um, I was talking to a friend
friend about this one time, and he, he was talking about um, where Elijah was when he wanted his life to be over, right? And um, then he heard from the Lord, heard a promise, and through that time was faithful for three years. And I think it was a good reminder of like that trust and that diligence in prayer, because you know it took three years of consistency and trust through that, and being a hundred percent faithful to get that breakthrough on that time. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Who was queen during the time? Jezebel. 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 450 prophets of Baal. He called out to Mount Carmel. Said, make a decision. Either God is the Lord or it's Baal. Let's see. And they were on one side and he was on another. And over and over again, they cried out to Baal but no one listened. They screamed, they hollered, they danced around, they cut themselves to no avail. Yes? I love this too because, you know, as we're talking about um, calling out to the church in our day, you know, um, Elijah said, you know, took a stand and he sided with God, you know, and then God did the miracle. Yes. God revealed, you know, and, and we... Don't be afraid to say, hey, listen, make a decision, but this is where I stand, just like Joshua, and then God shows himself. Amen. Amen. Elder Mark told a story uh, talking about uh, when God is finally rightly represented, he shows up, just like in the story of Job, right? Where else? It was in Elihu. It was Elihu, right? Yeah. Elihu finished speaking, God showed up. Yeah. But I got a quick testimony on that. That's yeah. really pretty cool. So Shane was doing a, a, a speech on, uh, he had to do a presentation on the Jehovah Witnesses versus Christians. So Shane and I went to a Jehovah Witness service. And uh, I would actually, I wouldn't suggest anyone go to it, but I mean, if you went to it, it would be a very challenge to find out whether it was, most Christians would go to it and not know it was not a Christian environment. They talk about Jesus, they talk about, and they worship, although it was dead. The spirit was not moving. We sat there for an hour and 45 minutes. But we went, and we, we went to leave, and we, we debated with them for a little while, Shane with a young man and me with an older, uh, older gentleman, and we realized we're not getting anywhere. We went to leave, and there was a guy in the back of the room, and I said something to him, and I said, your hip's hurting or something. And uh, I was wrong. It was his knee or something, and he's like, yeah, I need knee surgery. And I said, oh, wow. He, and I said, What's, I need a knee replacement, but I can't afford it. And I said, I got someone who will do it for free. And he was like, really? And I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, who is it? And I said, it's Jesus. And he goes, he doesn't do that anymore. And I said, but he does. And he goes, he doesn't. And I said, let's pray and let's let him decide. Amen. Oh, but he wouldn't let me pray for it. He goes, you came into my house and now you're trying to convert me? And I was like, wait a minute. You said you're a Christian. Yeah, Convert you to what? Yeah. It was a <laughs> 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 it wouldn't, it wouldn't allow me to pray, but that was exactly what happens. Is that looking at that when you're confronted and we say, let's let Jesus show up. Yeah. And that's what Elijah, I love this story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. The story reminded me of a verse in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul's talking, he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, 
But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Amen. What do you wish? I'll come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness. It's <laughs> yeah. good. It's good. Something else that blew my mind was that I've read the story and I've heard the story, but I guess I didn't understand that it was the people of Israel. Yeah. You know, I thought it was like another nation, mm-hmm. you know, that they were like testing their gods, but it was the, it was the house of God. Well, one of the reasons that Jezebel was so wicked is she made Baal worship the official religion. So before, they were at least uh, undivided. But when you talk about, hey, make a decision, either this or that, Jezebel was like, yeah, that, Baal worship. And Ahab went right along with it. So that was one of the reasons they were so wicked. Yes, Mike? I just had a question about the story. And I wondered, you know, if the Bible speaks to this or not. Elijah have foreknowledge of what God would be doing, or did Elijah kind of go out on his own and say, I'm just going to put this out there? And, you know, God was good to him and allowed that to come to pass. Boy, that's a great question. That's a great question. In verse 36, it stood out to me, he said, doesn't it um, say that by doing what the Lord commanded him to do? Is that what we're talking about? Well, I think that's speaking to how to set up the sacrifice, right? Like laying out the stones and setting it up, setting up the the ox to be sacrificed, possibly. Like, you know, and like he's doing it at his command, like looking back to Levitical law. Yeah, it's like if you're going to make an altar, it's going to make, make it out of, don't make it out of like uncut stones, oh. make it out of uncut stones, it's going to make yeah. it out of that, make it out of. So would it be simply following his word? Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure if anybody finds a verse that gives uh, clarity on that, you know, let us know. That's a great question. Uh, I mean, I don't know anything I say would be an assumption, but uh, that's a great question Did you just put himself out there, or was this something that the Lord was instructing to do? Yes, ma'am. We'll go to you, and then we'll go. We, we were just talking about faith. Yeah. Hebrews 1 says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Yeah. And we also said that by, you know, it's impossible to please God without faith. Yeah. So I believe he did it by faith. Yeah. God was pleased with how we trusted in him. 100%. And the miracles happened. 100%. 100%. Yeah, absolutely by faith. Yeah, Keith. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like the Jesus of Lazarus thing. Right. Did he just get a piece? Right. And then he's just moving from that one piece that he got. That's good. Um, That's great. Yeah, Valentin. I, I think when it references usually like the law, it talks about like mitzvahs. But here she's saying the bar. The so word. Like, like just. Like the word, so it's not like he's not referencing like the Levitical commands. Pastor Wade uh, preached a message: uh, debar and your lieb, which is the word in your heart, which is a way that they described conviction. So that was a conviction that you had when you had what they would call a word in your heart. So if what Valentine's saying, and and he's just operating by conviction, that'd be one piece. Let's keep going. 
What are the results of a divided heart? Is Michaela in here? Yeah, Michaela, James 1.8. What did you write next to it? Double-minded and unstable. Result of a divided heart. Anybody else write anything else for James 1.8? Remember this. Let me give you this piece of info. A lot of times we're wondering, well, should I do this or should I do this? Is this the better decision or is this the better decision? What I would tell you is, that's where a lot of people get stuck. The one command you know you have, don't be double-minded. We often get stuck. It's either this one or this one, door one or door two. It's either this decision or this decision. Well, what should I do? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And we get stuck in the I don't know. And that's the one place that we shouldn't be. Pick one and move forward in faith. That's like Abraham with Lot. With, uh, Lot. He's like, Lot, which one do you want? You got two choices. And Lot's like, I'll take the much sweeter option. And Abraham's like, Great. Goes the other way, it's the promised land, right? God will make the lesser option the better option. Do it in faith. But you are commanded not to be double-minded. So if you're stuck in the I don't know, pick one. (laughs) Pick one. It's not sin. Pick one. We're looking for the logically better idea. That's what we're looking for, right? And we usually end up deciding on the one that will cost us the least or put us in the best position. So we get stuck being double-minded until we figure out a way to go the most comfortable route. Do it by faith. Yes, sir. So double-minded in the New Testament, we would see is the word dialogismos. What word do you hear in that? Dialogue. Dialogue. And it's not a dialogue between you and someone else. It's an inner dialogue, debating with yourself about what's right or wrong. So I would say yes, it would fall into that category. When you are sitting there debating about what's right or wrong. Now, if we're talking about sin, right, then there is a clear right answer. And, that can, and you should always do that over the wrong, right? But when you are choosing between disputable matters, yeah. live by faith. Yeah. Someone had something? Okay. What if it's between two good things? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what we... Two, two equally good things. Well, just pick one. Just pick one. That's the partnership with the Lord that he's trying to communicate to us. Go ahead. 1 Samuel 10, 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. Yes, amen. And Jesus said, ask whatever you will in my name and I'll give it to you. He's trying to tell us, look, just go. I've empowered you. I've given you authority. And what does authority mean? Power to choose. It's the power to choose. Make a choice. Move forward in faith. Don't be double-minded. Yes, sir. Literally, I'm in that situation regarding vehicles. And you say that, and I'm like, yes, I will make a choice. My immediate next thought is, well, which one should I choose? I know which one I should choose. Yeah. 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 I don't know. 
Yeah. And you know what Mike would always do? He would always pick the harder option. But that was Mike. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> I would like to say that I did. I don't do that. I still try and pick the best option, but... Follow the way of wisdom, unless the Holy Spirit leads otherwise. All right, Romans 7.15. Someone get rich. Would you give me what you wrote, please? Uh, what I want to do, I cannot. Yeah, so a divided heart. You do what you hate. What I want to do, I cannot. What about Romans 7.21 through 23? Alyssa, what did you write? A war in the mind. I wrote... I made a prisoner in my flesh. Oh, Romans 7.25. Uh, let's see, Henry, what did you write? Uh, being subject to the law of sin. Subject to the law of sin. I wrote, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So here's what I have for what are the results of having a divided heart from these scriptures. You won't receive anything mm -hmm. and you're unstable. You do what you hate you're made a prisoner in your flesh and you become a slave to the law of sin when your heart is divided. That's when you're struggling between two masters. Do you see that? Struggling between two masters, divided heart, unstable, you don't receive anything, you're a slave, a prisoner, and you do what you hate. That's what happens when you're struggling between the two masters. Sin draws near. What are you picturing when you wrote that? Um, I was picturing like when you are questioning things and you want to go like the logical route or whatever and like obviously in being indecisive but also like acting out of impulse. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you're more likely to fall into death. You've been trusting in your own strength and going your own way. Yeah. yeah. And in the end, it leads to death. Decision. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Just like on that same note, I put like the undecided heart leads to unapplied truths, conceding to a sinful nature. Wow. I like that. Yeah, Lynn. Can you say that again? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Paul. The undecided heart leads to unapplied truths, conceding to the sinful nature. That's good. Like we know the word, but we don't do it. It's good. Yeah, Lynn. This kind of goes back to answer Sydney's question, in my opinion, because it paints a picture. If this is a result of a divided heart, a double-minded man unstable in all his ways, let that man not suppose to receive anything from God, right? I do what I hate, right? And the good I don't, I know to do, I don't do. That's sin. So then I'm a prisoner of sin and a slave to the law of sin. That's good. That's good. Let's go to Mark 10, 17. Natalie, would you read this for us? 10, 17 through 27. Do you have a glowing Bible, Natalie? 
Where's your Bible with pages? <laughs> Y'all bring Bibles with pages I in this room. All right. <laughs> she passed. Yes, please. Okay. It's not the message, is it? This is the word of God. Let's listen to it. Yes. <laughs> Would you stand, please? Would you stand, please? No. Declare it. Come on. Come on, public speak. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not be false, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my, from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to him, to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Man, you read that with authority. Thank you. It's Thank the you. Word of God. Amen. Even though it glows. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does this tell us about this young man, Victoria? Oh, Victoria, will you please speak much louder? You got good stuff to say. I want to hear it. Let's hear it. Um, I said that he wished to inherit eternal life and not maybe necessarily a relationship with God. Hmm. So he knew what was good on the outside and not good on the inside. Um, but he knew something was wrong with himself, is why he asked. Um, he was more concerned with the actions that he could do and get into heaven than like having like heart, heart posture. Wow. That's good. Why does Jesus respond with obedience to the commandments? I'm anxious to hear what you guys wrote. Christiane, what'd you write on this? I think that he was testing to see what would overflow out of his heart. He was looking for a response. He also got to see the rich young ruler's opinion of himself. I think that he asked him like kind of like a where do you think you're at? You know? Hmm. Yeah. Mm. And now I'll show you what things that you forgot about. Mm. I like that. I like your perspective. I wrote, because they are good and lead to life. So Jesus responds with obedience to the commandments. What I saw in this is the reason that he asked them is because the commandments are good and they do lead to life. But there was something that he was lacking. Okay. Even in the commands, which command that concerns relationships with man 
did Jesus leave out? Do not covet. Do not covet. He mentioned all the other commandments that have to do with the relationship concerning man from the Ten Commandments. But he left one out. Do not covet. I think he asked him with these commandments, I think he asked them about them because those commandments are good. And he was saying, even by the standard that you've been applying to your life, you fall short. <coughs> this is what I believe that Jesus was saying to him. You have a thought? If it doesn't say it, I, I, I wouldn't read that into it. This is, this is what I see, is that Jesus was intentionally leaving something out, which we know from Scripture, when you're saying this, then this, then this, and you're expecting this to follow, but you leave it out, it is to draw attention to it. Mm -hmm. Remember, we've been studying that with the Scripture. What would that I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he said other things or not, but what I see in that is that it was left out and the other ones were mentioned. So when I, see, uh, when I see Jesus responding with this, I think it also is uh, the same way that he uh, talks to the, um, the man with the talents who was given one talent, right? That man with one talent, what did he ascribe to the master? Who did he say that the master was? Hard man. Hard man. Reaping where he did not sow, gathering where he did not scatter seed, Right? And then the master, does the master say, no, I'm not. No, he answers him back and says, well, if that's true, then you should have at least done this. He holds him to the standard that he's been holding. How will we be judged when we stand before the Lord with the standard that we've applied to others? Yeah, Summer. So if coveting is a part of the commandment in the relationship with man, what, because of his great possessions, might be a commandment concerning the relationship with God that you can assume he was, he was breaking actively? Images, idols, right? So in Jesus telling him, go sell all your possessions, if he had been coveting, if he had been making idols right? Then what would him going and selling his possessions, giving the money to the poor and coming and following Jesus, what would that have solved? He'd be serving one master. He'd be serving one master. This would all of a sudden be repentance for any coveting, if that had been in his heart. And it would also be repentance from any idolatry. And it would be choosing instead to make one God with no other God besides the Lord, one Lord. So he would be fulfilling the commands and doing what Jesus had told him to do. He would be living in fulfillment and in agreement with the commands. So we see that this 
rich young ruler came to Jesus with the commands as the standard for life, Jesus answers him back according to that standard and then calls him to it fully. Do you see that? So does Jesus suppress the commands or make little of the commands or does he elevate them? He elevates them. Yeah, Javi. Yeah. And, uh, mule. Forty acres of mule. Yeah, we talk about what would it take to restore what was taken. Yeah. Um, and like how they um, oppressed um, African Americans. Yeah. It's like, how'd you get your money? Yeah, how'd you get your money? How'd you yeah, escape their fight? Good. And I think he escaped their fight because he was probably living off a privileged system, which was like a government official, someone high up, because uh, that's how any Jew was rich in that time, mm. was if they were in a privileged situation by the Romans. So, you know, tax collectors and things like that, they would have money. That's good. good same thing that happened with Zacchaeus that's good that's good reparations this this lesson today is sponsored by the word reparation <laughs> go ahead Ben uh, just a, a scripture that you know you were talking about coveting I, I had a similar answer to Christiane about I think it shows in this heart God wants his heart and the commandments give us pointers to what we're holding on to so and our need for a savior in our hearts mm -hmm. Romans 7 says in verse 7, What shall we say then that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Um, and then in verse 10 it says, or in verse 12, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Yeah, and so, amen. Um, it's, just, it's just showing our hearts. He's, he's putting a, a pointer on what he, you know, what's in fact. Well, he does it so expertly too. Yeah. Zach, did you have something? Um, this hobby reminded me of this. When I read this passage, I read a piece of commentary on the disciples' response, and it says the disciples were made in the wilderness. And this commentary says, um, just taking the stance that Javi did, um, just find it interesting what this says, because it reads, this commentary, that Jesus said, what Jesus said ran contrary to the conventional wisdom among the Jews and other ancient peoples. It was commonly thought that wealthy people who did their duty financially to the poor in their community were assured entry into the kingdom of God. Mm. 
So regardless of where he got his wealth from, their response indicates that they didn't expect Jesus to say that. They were expecting him to assure that man's salvation. Wow. So they were looking at the external, looking at these outside things, and so surely this guy's getting in. And then Jesus gives a different response. Yeah. To me, this really isn't any different than what we face today with what you were talking about earlier with the grace, the misrepresentation of grace. Yeah. This false preaching of what grace is about, oh, you can continue in your sin. God's grace covers you. You know, it's easy to be saved. All you have to do is say a prayer and you're saved and then you're covered by the grace of God, which Jesus is just saying here, it is hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. And their response to it was like, what? What? What do you mean? It, this guy's not yeah. going to enter? What? And yeah. it's like, when we are like, no, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's good. And people today under the grace gospel are like, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. 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 In the greater uh, context of this story and what Jesus taught, I mean, uh, Paul also said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, you can have 50 cents in your pocket and be in violation of that. But people that have wealth have a tendency to put their trust in wealth. They rely on their wealth. Nice to have a padded back and bank account, like Deuteronomy 8. Yeah. And so it's hard for somebody to function in the kingdom of God where they're relying on God for everything when everything that they have uh, makes it very easy for them to capture what they want. So let's make this hit home because I agree with you 100%. So let's take wealth. Why is it hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does a rich man think when a problem comes his way? How can he solve the problem? Take care of it. I got it. I got it. I got you. I got you. We go out to eat. I got the bill. Something breaks. I'll fix it. Right? I can take care of everything and everyone. I've got it. A rich man doesn't need help. A rich man doesn't have to cry out. Right? What about a strong man? What about someone who's very strong? What about someone who's walking on the street and anybody causes them any trouble, they can take care of them, right? That strong man doesn't need much help. A man who can build anything that he wants, who can fix anything, that man doesn't need much help. What about the smart man, the one who's really intelligent and can figure out ways around everything? That man doesn't need help. Whatever way we think we're strong is actually a weakness. Do you see that? Because it keeps us from acknowledging our need. It keeps us from crying out. What do we want to appear to the rest of the world? Strong, wealthy, smart. We want to appear like we don't need any help. That is working against us. That is hurting us. Because now we live in this part. We never move into that space of doing what he's called us to do. We don't need him. We live in this space. Do you see that? So the same is true for the rich man as for the strong man. As for the smart man, as for the skilled man, the connected man, the powerful man, the good-looking man, 
Any way that you are strong, you are weak when it comes to the kingdom. Any way that you feel sufficient in yourself. Yes, Anthony. When they came out of Egypt, who ended up going into the promised land? The children. That next generation, those from the age of zero to 20, after everyone had died out, they grew up to inherit the promised land. In Numbers 14, the Lord tells the rebellious parents, you were worried about your kids. I myself will shepherd them into the promised land, but you will die here in this desert. They said, we can't go in there because our wives and our children will die. But he said, no, no, no. I'm the one who carries you through. You're not the one who protects you. You're not the one who makes provision. You're not the one who causes you to inherit the kingdom, the promised land, what you are called to accomplish in your life. All right. This is sparking all sorts of conversation, but let's keep moving because we're almost at 830. This is good. We should be talking about these things. We should be thinking about these things. It's good for our brain to start developing neural pathways with this kind of thinking, right? We got to establish some roadways up here because it's been too long that these paths have been uncharted and we got to wear our way up here down these paths of truth. You know what I'm saying? The paths become stronger when you're using them all the time. The way of the kingdom needs to be strong neural pathways up here. We need to be thinking this way. So, why would Jesus command him to give up his possessions? Let me get one person on this. Vera, would you mind? I wrote that because Jesus was showing him he had attachment to earthly things. His heart loves the law, but with restriction. I love that. His heart loves the law, but with restriction. That's good. Does go and sell all you possess sound like, pray this prayer after me? <laughs> Is it possible to be saved, yet make no changes? No. If I'm falling and someone says, grab the rope, and I say, I believe in the rope. <laughs> Does that save me? No. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta grab the rope. Uh, I'm good. 
Paul counted all things as dung. There's even a worse word we could use that he uses. To win Christ. Philippians 3.8. Rubbish. Scoovalong. Zacchaeus had to repent of his thievery. The rich young ruler would have had to give up his riches. How does making Jesus the Lord of your life change the way you live? Dan, did you get anything for this one? Uh, live, live with eternity in mind. Um, not trusting in what is passing away. Yes. Uh, putting my hope in Jesus because there is no other way. That's good. Love it. Sarah, what did you write? Okay, Tim, what did you write? Do your homework. <laughs> Katie, what did you write on this? I wrote um, that it means a laying down of your own understanding and coming into alignment with the kingdom of God. And you have to count the cost of what it actually means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Um, that you are no longer the ruler of your life and um, he paid a price for you. Yes. I wrote, I go from building my own kingdom, my own way, to building his kingdom, his way. Amen. And I wrote for Galatians 2.20, my life does not belong to me. Let's go forward. We must make the choice to keep Christ first in everything. Remember, this is to your benefit. You must always remember... God is not insecure. God is not insecure. When he tells us these things, it is not because he is needy. It is because he made you and he knows what completes you. Right? We have to remember that. So let's go to Matthew 6.33. Zach, would you read out Matthew 6.33, please? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Good. So what's our part in that? Seek first what? And his righteousness. Don't forget about the righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Someone tell me, how I do that. Andrew, how would I do that today? How would I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness today? You mean practically? Sure. Well, I mean, so I think that a uh, really practical way would be like the first thing you do in the morning is to seek him, seek his face in prayer. Last thing you do at night, right? That's the priority. That's what you do first in your day. So it, when you're seeking him first in the morning, what are you asking him? What are you looking for? What's the purpose in seeking him first in the morning? Let's pretend that everyone in this room has no idea what you're talking about. What would you say? Okay. First thing in the morning. Well, so you're seeking his kingdom. So that's like asking for his, like, you know, if you think of the, the Lord's prayer even, right? May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So, you know, asking for his will to be done in our lives, in our workplace, you know, the things that we're doing throughout our day. And if we're seeking his righteousness, 
Good. Let's pop around the room. Give me one-liners that you guys pray to actively ask him to have his way in your life. Give me one-liners. Yeah, Javi. Yeah, give me one-liners. Don't explain it to me. Give me, give me one line like you might say to the Lord. Oh, I just pray uh, you're on your way. Just hear me. Okay. Be careful to obey your commands. Okay. I pray that. Okay. Lord, help me to be careful to obey your commands. I read that. I read it. I pray. You read Deuteronomy 6. All right. Someone else give me a line. Yeah, go ahead. Lord, you've prepared good works for me to do in advance today. Help me not miss them. Yes. Good. Good. What else? What else? Help me be a blessing to others. What else? Yeah, Rob. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Good. Rich. Um, I always pray and ask for the kingdom of God to come alive in my life, which would be his righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. What else? A few more. I can't do anything apart from you. I can't do anything apart from you. Yes. Less of me, more of you. Less of me, more of you. Search me and know me. Search me and know me. Direct my path. Yes. Amen. What do you have for me today? Pray what? Strength. Yes. What do you need me to do? What do you need me to do today? Yes, good. I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, if there's anything in me that's preventing me from hearing your voice, get it out of me. Search me. Know me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Right? Lead me in the way everlasting. I'm praying these prayers. These are things that we pray each day. And we seek His kingdom. Not mine. And His righteousness. Not what I think is best. This also requires that we know this. Because if we want to know His kingdom and what His kingdom is all about, we can read this story that He wrote for us through men. Okay. What is God's part in Matthew 6, 33? To give us what we need. How does making Christ Lord change our priorities? Summer, what'd you write? Put him first in everything. I wrote, we go from seeking the temporary to pursuing what is eternal. Let's go to Psalm 119, 9 through 16. You know what I think we're going to do today? I think we're going to make an executive decision. I think instead of trying to rush through the next several parts, because I like this discussion, I think we'll just keep going at the pace that we're going. We'll finish at 9, and then wherever we're at, we'll pick up next week. Is that okay with everybody? Because I want y'all to talk through these things. We live in a, we live in a time and in a culture where making Jesus Lord is a joke. It's a joke. What it means to be, we use the term Christian, you'll hear me using more and more the word believer, right? That's the word that I'm using more and more, a believer. It's a joke. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. What you see out there, someone calling themselves a Christian, it's a joke. We have another ministry that just got hit right in our backyard. 
large ministry that spans decades and has affected tens of thousands of people in many countries around the world, leader gets shot down, right? Not physically. There was a... Find out about it later. Listen to what I'm saying now, okay? Two gigantic mega ministries right in our backyard that have affected the world, both in the last 12 months, losing their main figure, getting fired. This is crazy. That's terrible. It's, it's bad for everyone. It's bad for everyone that that's happened. It's bad. There is no rejoicing. There is no aha. This is the work of God, and the enemy is getting victories. If we think we can continue along the way that we've been going, we will find ourselves falling. Maybe it won't be so publicized, but we ourselves will be falling by the wayside, one by one, if we don't take this seriously. We have to be willing to take a sober assessment of ourselves, see where we've gotten it wrong, and allow him to correct us as we walk in repentance towards righteousness. Too long now, the emphasis has been put just on greasy grace, right? And this misconstrued idea of mercy. We've, we've, we've messed it up. What it means to be saved. We've messed it up. We've detached ourselves from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We don't even know really what that means or what it is. We don't know what the new covenant really means. We're not learning what we say we devote our lives to, right? And it's been that way for too long. Making Jesus Lord, if we'll get this, if we'll get this down, this is our foundation. This is where we start. Because no one whose hope is in the Lord will be disappointed. But if your hope is in something other than the Lord, you will be put to shame, disappointed, right? Rob. Talked about what? Grace. Yeah. Like the perversion of it. Mm. It reminded me of Jude 4. Um, and I didn't even catch this there in the times that I've read this before, but um, I'll just read it real quick. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's right on. That's right on. Um, let's see. Miss Aria, would you mind standing up and reading uh, Psalm 119, 9 through 16, please? One nineteen verses 9 through 16, if you would. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. 
Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's good. So what is our responsibility? Someone hit me with these. Seeking with all of our heart. Walk in purity. Know the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Follow his laws. Apply the word of God. Recount the laws. Recount the laws. Delight in his laws and his precepts. Rejoice in them. Do not forget them. Do not forget them. Declare them. Okay, wait. Oh, wait. Someone tell me, uh, you guys are talking about the law. Didn't Jesus do away with the law? No. 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 What do you mean? What do you mean? I, I don't know. I thought the law was the Old Testament. Aren't we living in the New Testament now? He correctly interpreted it with the way he lived. He correctly interpreted it with the way that he lived. Okay. But we're not under the law anymore, though, right? So I don't understand. How does the law apply? Like, how does the law apply to me? Our school teacher. What do you mean? Uh, I think it's from Galatians where it says that uh, the, the Old Testament was kind of our school teacher to teach us how to live righteously before God. Okay. Well, okay. I, I, but I don't keep my school teacher forever, though. I mean, like, now I'm an adult. I mean, I, so what does it have? I mean, that was when I was young. Like, I don't use a lot of things that I learned when I was in school. You know, so I mean, is the law, like, are you saying that the law is... Okay. Okay. So then I should be doing, well, I read in Leviticus all these things that are outdated. So does that mean that I should be stoning my kids when they smart off or? <laughs> yeah, Laura May, speak super loud. Okay, I mean, but what do you mean? So, I, I don't, should I be stoning my kids if they smart off? I mean, that's no, good. because he's the fullness of it. So, like the laws just to show us where the lack was and the way that it would be, it would have been done if it was done perfectly. So Jesus came and did it perfectly. Therefore, he's the example. He didn't get rid of the law. He just fulfilled it. So now he is the new standard. He's still the same law. The way he lived is the is the standard of the way that we're supposed to live. So because he left and gave us his Holy Spirit, we have the ability to live that same way. Okay. So let me let me answer part of it. Oh, go ahead, Paul. You can answer part let of it. Let me answer part of this. <laughs> let me answer part of this because I want to give you all another part in the same line of thinking that's really important. So when, we when someone comes, how many of y'all have heard what I just now said from other people? <clears throat> we're not under the law anymore, though. I mean, like, what does that have to do? Are you saying I should stone my kids when they backtalk or like... If a woman is, you know, I'm not going to go that way. <laughs> they could bring up lots of examples, right, from the Old Testament and say, are we still supposed to do, do those things? So when we talk about the law, and David calls it beautiful, he says, it, by, by it I have life, yeah. right? I delight in your law. And he's talking about the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not many believers today would say they feel that way about the Torah, the first five books. Rich was dead on. This was our teacher. This shows us how to live because we don't know. Who do I get how to live from? The view? 
is Dr. Phil who teaches me how to live? Do I learn how to live from Us Weekly? Entertainment Today. Who teaches me how to live? Hollywood? My favorite movies? Who teaches me how to live? What about my imperfect parents who they themselves were raised uh, with imperfect parents? Are they the standard for my life? How do I know how to live? How do I know what to do? How do I know what God requires? Yes, sir. Well, uh, part of it is the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where uh, God said a time will come and I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. And certainly the given, giving of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never go against the Ten Commandments. The Holy Spirit's going to uh, lift up not just those laws, but many others. And sometimes he'll teach us things that are really just for us but they are beneficial in our walk and what we're called to do. I, I, I love it. You talked about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's covenant was what? The covenant that was made with Abraham was what? It wasn't just that, it, that he would write his laws on their hearts. What else was a part of that? I'll make you a father of many nations. Of many nations, right? The man, the land, and the plan. The man, the land, and the plan. Yes. And so what we see is a covenant was made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we see his seed continuing on to this day. Who do we see are the physical descendants of Abraham? Who is it? Israel. Right now, if you are to look at the nation of Israel, has the Lord written his laws on their hearts? Right now. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant will come, like Zechariah talks about, when the Lord returns, takes away their sin, and writes his law on their hearts, and the whole nation will be saved in one day. That will be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Right now, we see a mystery in that Gentiles are able to be included in repentance unto salvation. Right now, we see that. But the fulfillment of his promise will come, not when he partially fulfills it or fulfills a side part of it, but fulfills it completely. Because if I were to tell my son, when you grow up, I'm going to give you this house, and then he grows up and I give him a room... Did I fulfill my promise? No. no. I'll fulfill my promise when I give him what? The house. That's how he fulfills his promise. Fully, exactly the way that he said he would. What we see right now is there's a taste. We're the first fruits. We're the first fruits of the harvest that's coming. This is what we're seeing. It's a glimpse. We're seeing a glimpse into it. But the greatest glory will be when he takes a nation from birth and delivers them all the way into salvation and then rules over them from the throne of David in Jerusalem. This is when the covenants will be fulfilled, right? So when we talk about the law and the good things of the law, the law is perfect. The law is good. What we recognize is that we cannot live up to the standard of the law. And so Jesus took the full penalty of the law upon himself. We are not saved because of our adherence to the law. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is what saves us, and it's grace that allowed us to have faith, and that continues us on and seals us until that day when we are completely saved, even from these bodies that are perishing, and we receive eternal bodies that will last forever. And so the law is instruction for us day to day in conjunction with the Holy Spirit yeah. 
who shows us how to rightly understand and discern his law, his word. Do you see how the two work in tandem like the sun and the moon? Does the moon have any light of its own? No, but it reflects the light of the sun. Go ahead. When we say fulfillment of that promise, what you see is that we are grafted in. We are not a fulfillment of that promise. We are somehow brought in a, a mystery, Paul says. How in the world did we Gentiles, this people that was not, and now we get to be called a people, even though we were not his people, somehow we get to be included in this. We are Abraham's descendants if we do as Abraham did, but that does not neglect the physical descendants that came from Abraham to whom the promise was given. Oh, right. I'm not, I, right, but um, writing his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds, that's all through the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and we will come and make them envious, but they are the ones who, when they receive him, it will be resurrection from the dead for the world. That's the fulfillment. So we are, we are a part of the story, but we are not the fulfillment of it. And we can talk more about that afterwards if you would like, but I'm telling you, that's, that's for sure. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, pretty much along with everything that you're saying, right, like the law is the standard that we're supposed to live by, and it's the highest standard that you can have, and we can't obviously do it, and so it ends up being through Jesus that we have to do it. So it reminded me of Romans 8, says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, uh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Yes. Anyone in here able to fulfill all of the law perfectly? No. So then what do we do? Thanks be to God for Jesus who has saved us from this body of sin and death, right? There's no condemnation. Why? Because through the Son, we are granted an eternal life. If we believe, if we have faith that his sacrifice was enough, if we will trust his words and trust and obey his words, that's how we walk day to day. But what saves us is his sacrifice, right? We live according to what the word says because it's the best way. There's no better way than what the word tells us. There's no better way to live. Who's got a better way? Doesn't exist. Mm. Right? Go ahead. I have a question. Yes, sir. So I get confused when we talk about the law. Okay. So... Sometimes I think of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Other times I think of the first five books of the... What would you say? I mean, so when we say, is the law good? Yeah. What are we discussing? Are we talking about the first five books? Are we talking about the Ten Commandments? Are we talking about the 613 laws? 613 laws are, some, are in the Torah. Right. So they're in the first five books. They're in the first five books. Right? When we talk about the uh, Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, Right? So Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, right, stands for the T and the N and the K. Remember in Hebrew, 
They only have the consonants. They add in the vowels so that they become words, right? So, but we have T, N, and K. It stands for Torah, Navim, and Ketuvim, which is the writings and the prophets, okay? So we see the writings and the prophets show us about the law. And they all direct and point back to the law. But the law is the five, first five books. Yeah. But a lot of times when we talk about the law, most people think the Ten Commandments. Think the Ten Commandments. Ah, That's gotcha. What my question is, oh, yes. is yeah. that if you said question. to the law in here and asked people, what is the law, most people would say the Ten Commandments. But we're mixing sometimes when we ask, what do you mean by the law, the fulfillment of the law? That's good. So the Ten Commandments are part of the law, right? Are part of the law entire. But the law entire, we see are 613 commands. Now, I forget the number of actually practical laws that we can live by in our day and life, right? Some of those laws apply to sacrifices that we don't make. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. But if you say sacrifices have been completely done away with, well, there's some interesting passages in Ezekiel and Malachi that seem to point to, in the millennial reign, sacrifices coming back. Crazy. But we see that it's not about sacrifices here, now, right? Those laws don't apply to us in our daily lives. But about the way that we treat each other, about the way that we interact with the Lord, about the way that we treat the orphans, the poor, the widows, injustices that we see around the world. These laws instruct us as to what the kingdom of God is built on, as to what righteousness is daily and practically played out. And so the law of God instructs us and shows us the standard teaches us about the kingdom of heaven so that we can bring it here on earth daily as we interact with each other. Does that make sense? Okay, so forgive me for being dense. It's okay. It's not, it's not dense. The 613 laws that you're talking about, yeah. were those all laws that were commanded from God to the scribes, the priests? Just to Moses. Just to Moses. On the mountain. 613. Yeah. No, it's okay. And listen, none of these questions, this is what this is about. This is what this forum is for, so we can ask questions and go back and forth. That's why we're doing it this way. So what Jews believe, now, I'm not a Jew, okay? What Jews believe is that the oral law was also given to Moses on Mount Sinai at the same time. They passed down the oral law until around the year 200, at which point they wrote it down. Okay, I believe it's 200 BC, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so, but what that was, was also pertaining to the 613 laws. There are no more besides that. Anything beyond that are interpretations of those laws or how to halakha, which is carry them out in your day-to-day -day life. So a law may be, oh, help me out. Yes, right, do no work on the Sabbath. Uh, what does that mean, do no work? Because scientifically, breathing is defined as work, <laughs> right? And so they had to figure out how to halakha, which is to walk out the commands. And so they defined it. Some rabbis would define it this way. Some rabbis would define it this way. Some of the rabbis would carry around big, heavy scrolls of their interpretations 
of the laws. And that was called their yoke. Their yoke was their interpretation of the laws, how to walk them out. Someone comes to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest command? At first he answers, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is our relationship here. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He said, this sums up the law and the prophets. That was Jesus's yoke. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So for the simple person who says 613, my goodness, what do I do? What do I do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Start there. Then you can love your neighbor as yourself. Because you'll be receiving love from the source of love. He'll teach you how to love others the way that he loves, which is the best. That's the kind of love that can love even those who hate you. There's no other love like that on earth. You start there. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. This sums up the law and the prophets. It's amazing, right? Jesus is not about putting heavy burdens on us. He's about living the best way. And his way is the best way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. My way leads you to the Father. And the beautiful thing is, and we'll end with this. Pastor Eric, when he was here, he talked about uh, that wording, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We look at that and it's like, oh man, you know, like he's commanding us to do that. But the way that it's worded is more like a promise. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength like he's leading us to this place. Like we are growing up into it, like we are maturing into this and that our growth and our maturity and our perseverance will lead us to this reward, to this harvest of righteousness if we don't give up, if we'll persevere. Does that make sense? All right, let's stand together. How important are our choices according to that psalm? I wrote life or death. Our choices will lead us to life or our choices will lead us to death. We had an incredible discussion tonight. This is good. Good back and forth. We have to get this right. The world is counting on us getting this right. It is not about a religion. It's about us understanding why we believe what we believe. If we truly grasp that and we're standing on the foundation of Christ and he is the word made flesh to come and dwell among us, but he taught us how to live out the law with the right heart, not looking to it for salvation, but letting it be our guide to bring righteousness to this world because the glory of God will cover the earth as the seas. And we see that we will carry out his laws that are being written on our hearts. Do you see that? So ultimately, even in the end, 
We won't be going to each other saying, hey, will you teach me? Teach me about these things. Teach me. Will you teach me about the law? Will you teach me about, how do I know the Lord? How do I, he says, no, 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 because they will all know me and my law will be written on their hearts. That's where we're moving to. So the law doesn't go away. It is perfect. It is good. We are imperfect. But Jesus closes the gap with his grace. Do you see that? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for the brotherhood of believers. Thank you for the family of God. We ask that these words would find their way deep into our hearts and that they would permeate every part of who we are. That when we speak, we wouldn't just speak with logically sound or man-made arguments or creative words or intellectual sounding uh, uh, speech, but God, that we would speak your words to a world that is hurting and dying and broken and in need. Lord, that we would be a light, that we would bring everything into the light, that we ourselves would live in the light, not hiding anything or holding anything back or trying to pretend that we're something when we're not. But Jesus, rather living as unto you, whether we live or die, as unto you, Lord. And that we would do everything as for you, serving you. Not just men, but you, Lord. So God, I just thank you for tonight. And I just pray that we would live as freed men and women. And that we would walk with confidence and boldness. Not in our own strength, or in our own riches, or intellect, or anything of ourselves. But that we would be confident. And he who is at work in us, who has overcome the world. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.